0: Welcome to a special bonus edition of The Jesus Calling Podcast, featuring multiple guests who have appeared in their own episodes on The Jesus Calling Podcast sharing inspiring stories about mothers—either their own or others—who have influenced their lives by showing them motherly love. It's a blessing and a responsibility to nurture others, whether it be those in our own family or those outside our family who may not know the love of a mother. So many lives have been positively influenced by women, mothers, grandmothers, aunts, sisters, or friends who took it upon themselves to love and care for someone, modeling God's unconditional love for us all. We hope these stories will encourage you and remind you of that special person in your life that hoped for you, prayed for you, and believed in you when you needed it the most. We'll start with some thoughts from country gospel singer, Jason Crabb.
1: I grew up in a little small town called Beaver Dam, Kentucky. It is in Ohio County, which is between Bowling Green and Owensboro, Kentucky. Huge basketball fans, of course that's anybody from Kentucky had to be. Raised in church, always went to church, looked for an excuse to go to church. My father was a pastor for many years of my life. I remember growing up, I'd love to say that everything was just, you know, kind of little house on the prairie kind of thing. But it wasn't, you know, there was some tough moments and there was some tough things that happened in, in life. My parents divorced, my dad remarried, and so immediately I had some new sisters. Um, my dad made things right with the Lord and felt that he needed to minister and started a church in Philpot, Kentucky. Next thing you know, all of us kids are interested in singing. We're interested in music, and so we buy a little old bus and head out on the road, traveling and telling people about the grace of God. And that's kind of how it all it all began. Around 16 years old is when I went out on the road, traveling, singing. I didn't know what I was doing, but you know we knew who we were singing about because we really had a we trusted in Him. Every day that we were on the road, it was just a trust in Him because we didn't know where the next dime was going to come from to put fuel in the bus. We just relied on God. I really love watching God work in people's lives. There's nothing in the world that I love more than sitting on stage and watching God work in a person's life that's in the altar praying. I love that because you can tell a lot of times people that are hurting, people that are going through trouble, or rejoicing. There's some that come to the altar that just rejoice because of the great thing that they have found, a treasure that they have found in Jesus. And and it is. It's it's a wonderful thing. You can see tears of joy and and thankfulness. I think it's very important that we share a lot of, um, of the pieces of our lives. I think that's what God has called us to, is to share moments of our lives where He is He's pulled us and helped us, and there's victory. My grandmother was probably the greatest prayer warrior I've ever ran into. I remember going uh, with my summers, like when I was 12, 13 years old, helping my grandfather out on the farm and spending my summer there. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, two or three o'clock in the morning, my grandmother would have her Bible out. And because my room was right across from hers, and you could hear those little thin pages turning, and you could hear her talking to God as she was reading. She'd say, thank you, Lord, for this Word. Talking to Him just like I'm talking right now. And it was a realness, not just for, to get, you know, in church, you know, uh, you just hope and pray that God moves and, and those kinds of things. And and you see it happen. But when it becomes the fabric of a person's life, that at two o'clock in the morning, there's nobody watching. There's nobody that's paying attention to, you know, her, or she's getting self-gratification from others. She's just talking with our Savior. And I got to witness that. And when I went through a very tough little moment on the road, and I looked through my phone, and I was just trying to, nobody around me was acting right. (laughs) And I went through my phone, and I was trying to find somebody to call, just to talk to, there's no reason. And first person that came to my mind was my grandmother. And so I called her. She said, Jace, when you get to the end of your rope, tie a big knot in the end of it, and hang on with all your might. And then while you're hanging on, know this, that he's holding on to you. I really do miss her a lot. There's been many times that i would give anything in the world to call her. You know, go sit with her, talk with her. So uh, all you grandmas out there, all you mamas, know you have a big job but the impact that you're making on your grandchildren's lives and on your children's lives is amazing. Me and my wife, we went through two miscarriages right back to back. You know, the rest of the family were having children around us. It was very trying. I remember that song, Through the Fire, just came out. And I'm singing that on stage each and every night, singing that to myself and my wife. You know, he never promised the cross would not get heavy, the hill would not be hard to climb. He never offered our victories without fighting, but he said help would always come in time. And so me and Shelly, we hung to the promises. We've had, you know, people praying over us and tell us, you know, it's going to happen. And we tried to hang on with every, all that we could possibly hang on to that. And uh, right after that, we found out that we were expecting. After two miscarriages, our third, there was something in our heart that just felt right. Before, we were nervous. And at this moment, we give it to God, we quit worrying about it, and then it happened. And Ashley, she is here now, at 15 years old. Now she just got her permit, and um, I'm just... Very, very thankful for my children and thankful that God allowed this to happen. And thankful also that I get to share the tough days with others that are struggling. My wife gets to share that to help other women that are going through those very same problems. I think one of the biggest attacks of the enemy is he wants to make us feel alone in our situations. And the more that we talk about not only our blessings, which I think that is great, but also the pain. Talk about the pain, but talk about what God has done, how he brings us through. It just, it helps. It helps others. I think that's what we're all supposed to do, is help others.
0: Writer and mother
2: of HDTV star Mike Rowe, Peggy Rowe. My name is Peggy Rowe. I'm a wife, a mother of three sons, two granddaughters, two grand dogs, and three great grand dogs. <laughs> I'm active in my church, I sing in the choir, I enjoy Bible study, and of course I write. I write every day. I can't not write. It's like I was born to write. I was born in 1938 and raised, uh, lived my entire life. In Baltimore, Maryland, where I still live, I was born into a middle-class working family and lived in a middle-class working neighborhood. My dad was an electrician, and later on, he became an electrical contractor. He was a gentle, loving person, the best father in the world. There was nothing he would not do for his family. He was hardworking and smart with just a seventh grade education. My mother was a take charge kind of person, a real organizer, a decision maker, very capable. There was nothing my parents could not do, it seemed to me growing up. From the time I was born, I was horse crazy. I was a tomboy, much to my mother's chagrin, as she wanted me to be a refined young lady. I galloped around the yard, I jumped over the neighbor's bushes, and jumped over the birdbath, I jumped over the ditch out front. I think that I actually thought I was a horse early on. (laughs) Growing up, my mom's goal for her two children was to raise two refined young ladies. Well, being um, a horse-crazy tomboy just did not fit in with her plans. But, she came around when she saw how devoted I was to horses. Of course, I didn't have a real horse. Um, She was on board, and she did everything she could to make my love a reality. One day, I was out running around the yard galloping around the yard with my dog. And I stopped to eat some grapes from the grapevine. Well, the grapevine was wrapped around two sturdy vertical poles. They were horizontal poles, but one was on top of the other. And I just, as a matter of, um, just happened to step on the bottom pole and swing my right leg over the top pole. And my goodness, I thought I was on a horse. And my virtual horse was the grapevine where some mothers might have decided I needed counseling. My mother was right on board, and she went in the house and she got me an old cushion. She got some clothesline rope so that I had a saddle and reins for my horse. And every day I got on that horse and I rode the prairie. (laughs) And that was my horse until I was about 10 years old. And of course, my mother must have been embarrassed when neighbors looked outside and saw me sitting on top of the grapevines like like some weather on top of a barn. <laughs> she was really a good sport about it. I have written quite a bit for newspapers and magazines. And whenever I would write a story about my mother, I wrote mainly for the Baltimore Sun I would get these wonderful responses from readers, comments like, oh, Peggy, I can relate to your mother. My mother was just like your mother. Or, oh, your mother sounds like a wonderful person and such a character. Well, after a while, I came to realize that my mother was really good material. (laughs) And so I decided to write about my mother. They say that hindsight is 2020, and I believe it, because writing this memoir for me was not only cathartic, but it was an eye-opener. Growing up, I did not appreciate my mother, as most children don't. But as an adult, writing about her and looking back, I see the sacrifices she made for me they were not just financial sacrifices because there came a time when I did have my own horse. And my parents, I don't know that they actually struggled, but they spent a lot of money on horse feed and uh, on tack and clothes and so forth because I did get into the show scene and I did ride my horse in, in horse shows. So that was a bit of a sacrifice. but. I saw, as an adult, looking back, how devoted they were to me, and how they sacrificed their own their own desires and their own interests, so that I could go to horse shows on Sunday and uh, take my horse on a trailer. and my mother constantly shopped secondhand shops so that I could have nice riding clothes. I didn't appreciate that at the time. But as an adult, I certainly have an appreciation for what my parents, especially my mother did for me and my father also. I think probably the greatest gift my mother gave me was an ability to treat people the way that I would like to be treated. That was a gift that she had. My father also had that gift. They treated people with the utmost of respect And I hope that I do that. I think I do. The greatest gift that my parents gave to me was their love.
0: Urban Gospel Music Singer, Kira Sheard Kelly.
3: I tell this story about when I was at like a record company and I started saying I want to own my big. You know, though I'm I'm big and heavy in weight and I know there were some things which my family encouraged me. We want you to be healthy. There's a such thing as being confident, but we also want you to be healthy. In the beginning, for anybody that's trying to defeat an addiction, you have to own and accept And take responsibility for your actions, right? So even if it is something that somebody has once upon a time made an insecurity, you still have to own it. But this was a a way to own who you are as far as you're beautifully made different, if that makes sense. Um, so I talk about when I was like, I want to do full body shots. And they were like, you can't do full body shots. You got to do head up shots. And I'm just like, no, I want to do a full body shot. And somebody said that I look like a Pillsbury Doughboy. And it came from someone that I kind of was trusting and I didn't expect it to come from. I mean, literally, I was growing through this journey and I kind of go back in the pages of my life. And I'm like, let's just let me give this to somebody else so it can help them. Since I love young women, I love young men as well, but I feel like my assignment is to pour into young women. I think when we're going through experiences and we see I'm not the only one that's going through that, then for sure I can get through this. If she went through that too, if she went through that bad relationship, if she spent poorly or if she had a bad attitude, then I can get through this too. My Nana gave me the book, Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, because there was something that my Nana knew that she couldn't communicate to me that if I just give it to her in a book, I think she'll get it. The book, it tells you how can you identify those things. Sometimes it's the things that are abnormal about you. Sometimes it's what comes naturally to you. My mother just said, Kiara, just start singing, and I just started singing. And now my career is based off of what comes natural to me. I am a Jesus calling reader. I really am. I got that from my Nana too. The village is not just for the child. It's for the adult. And I think the Bible says it. And I think that's one of the scriptural references. The scripture is in the multitude of counsel, there is safety. And so that's one of my favorite scriptures because I literally have gotten so many answers from my advisors. And that can be my friends, my loved ones, my my sibling, anybody that I feel like God has said yes to. And they've contributed so much to the path of my life.
4: Singer,
0: writer, and educator, Gloria Gaither.
4: I grew up in a pastor's home. My parents were converted when I was a baby. So my whole life, because they, were, they began to follow Christ late in their lives, in their 30s, my childhood was full of excitement at every night when they got together at the, at the dinner table about what they had discovered in Scripture. My life was just full of um, evangelists and missionaries and pastors and theologians and people that came through our house. Uh, I guess my earliest desire was to have something to say at our dining room table and the discussions that went on around there. And thankfully, my parents didn't think children should be seen and not heard. They thought they should be heard if they had something to say. So I always wished I had a way to jump into those conversations. Our home was also filled with recovering alcoholics and vagrant teenagers and people who had no place to go. And um, we were constantly going through our closets to find the clothes that people needed and trying to figure out how the two pounds of hamburger would stretch to feed a lot more people. So ministry wasn't something my parents did. It was something they were, and I'm eternally grateful for that. I grew up in in a home that also really valued education. And it never entered my mind to say, will I go to college? It was, where will I go to college? And although we were in a tiny little high school in a tiny little town in Michigan, we had no speech classes even, let alone any competition uh, debate or forensics of any kind, two different teachers began to enter me into speech contests. And they personally took me to those competitions. And they were usually oratory where I would write my own speech and deliver it. So that was an experience early on. I won the Michigan State speech contest my, I think it was my sophomore year or junior year. And I won the state of Michigan. I met President Eisenhower. I had my speech put in the congressional record and I was in the top 10 finalists in, in the nation, which was really a hoot because I'd never stayed in a real hotel. I had never flown an airplane. As it turned out, education and communication were my, my lifetime pursuits. What I've learned as a writer is that I used to think that the more general you could write, the more people it would, you'd identify with. Actually, I found exactly the opposite. It is the specifics that people identify with everybody has held a newborn baby and wondered what will this kid face every i mean it's whether they're in you know Europe or Scandinavia or where everybody's had that experience everybody's walked with their children through passages where they had to start coming of age and you have to start letting go and it's scary and it's wonderful and it's frightening all in one breath You don't want them to not grow up, but you're afraid. What if I've not taught them what they need to know? So I I found that when we wrote Because He Lives, we wrote that because of our baby who was born at the end of the 60s. He was born in 1970. And the Vietnam War had just torn up the country. The drug culture was really in full swing. And, And we looked at this little baby and said, you know, if it's like this now, what will the world be, you know, in 17 years when he has to face it? And so we wrote, how sweet to hold our newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives, but greater still, the calm assurance. This child can face uncertain days because he lives, and because he lives, I can face tomorrow. We didn't think that that would be for anybody but us. But what we found was that everybody who holds a newborn baby, when has the world been stable? It's never been stable. It wasn't stable when Jesus was born. You know, so we don't, base our lives on the stability of the world, the secular world. We base our lives on the stability of knowing that because Christ lives, the resurrection is not only true for that one time shot in history, it is true in everything in nature, it's true in everything around us. Life wins, life wins. So um, when we wrote that, we found, you know, of all the songs that we thought were so personal, it has been the most universal. If your baby woke up healthy this morning, cooing and laughing and eating his oatmeal, you know, that's a miracle. Try a baby that can't do any of those things. I mean, every single thing is a miracle. And if it is a child who has special needs, I have never seen a Down syndrome child that doesn't know something we don't know. They are so loving and forgiving and they're connected in a spiritual way sometimes that People who think they're smart are just are not. They're not connected like that. Everything in our lives is to say something to us that is eternal. This morning I got up and I always start my day with Jesus always, I'm on now, I did uh, Jesus only. Um, Actually, Sarah sent me a copy of that years ago when she was just trying to get it out. And nobody knew it from Adam, and it was on my counter right here in my kitchen, where I am right now. And it's such a joy to see all these years later how God has blessed that little book. Here's what it said this morning. As you go through this day that I've gifted to you, look for signs of my abiding presence. I am with you, watching over you continually. On bright, joyful days, speak to me about the pleasures I provide. As you thank me for them, your joy will expand abundantly. On dark, difficult days, grasp my hand in trusting dependence. I will help you. You are my beloved." So many times the nitty gritty, silly things of life get right in front of us. And if we've learned anything from these two recent hurricanes, is how many people said, okay, that's just stuff. I can replace the stuff, but I can't replace my children. I can't replace my mother. I can't replace my husband. You know, it makes you get your priorities reshuffled to, okay, what matters? What really matters? Now, as we forget about the hurricane and we get everything all cleaned up and we get our houses all shiny again, then we'll tend to think that we're in charge and that every little thing, every water softener that breaks and every tennis shoe that we don't get to have the new Best, whatever design is life or death. But I hope at least for a little while we will remember that it's not. That's not life or death. What's life or death is we have this moment to hold in our hands and to touch as it slips through our fingers like sandy. Yesterday's gone, tomorrow may never come, but we have this moment today.
0: Author and pastor. Ray Roberts.
5: I am a California native. I was uh, born in Oakland, California, but uh, was raised in Los Angeles, um, and in particular, South Los Angeles, a, a community called Watts, which is uh, only a couple of square miles. But at the time that I was growing up there, there was so much uh, crime concentrated in that small area that there was really no way to avoid being witness to some of the things that took place there. I was raised by my mom, Uh, she was a single parent. Uh, my father, I had a limited interaction with. They weren't married when when I came into being. And so my mom had to single-handedly raise a son in a tough neighborhood like that and work and climb up the corporate ladder. And she did a really good job, particularly with the tools that she had. And I met Christ when I was nine. You know, my understanding of him was very limited. It was just that he died on the cross, I had a place in heaven. And if I got in trouble, he would bail me out and so it would be much later that I went on a deeper journey which has kind of led me to the moment that I'm at now. My mom was really super smart and uh, she knew that, you know, based on where she was financially at the time, she couldn't necessarily move us uh, entirely out of that area but she could send me to places that would expose me to, you know, other things, other uh, diversity and culture and art. Uh, I remember her sending me to USC. They had a summer program for youth. And so I I was literally taught the guitar by this awesome professor there on campus. And so, I mean, she would send me to great summer camps and ultimately to private school. So she had a strategy sent me to a private Christian military school in Long Beach, where I was uh, not only uh, exposed to a wide variety or a wider variety of people, but just to, to become a disciplined young man. And, uh, and also it was Christian. So it was very principle based and, um, and it was awesome. You know, I loved, uh, I, I loved music. Uh, I love to, to draw uh, and it was funny at a really young age, I, uh, I had this vision of being a child psychologist and uh, I don't know why and, and I didn't necessarily pr- pursue that uh, in school, but it's funny now, you know, fast forward all these years and I, I have an opportunity to, to speak truth and minister messages like wholeness uh, to God's children. So, you know, you're always a little closer to purpose than you think. God puts it on the inside at an early age. My background is business and I worked uh, before being in ministry, I worked in corporate America for 11 years in uh, the technology sector, in the capacity of marketing and sales. And I found myself being successful outside. And so I had a vibrant and robust social life, you know, for my age in particular, my finances were really, really strong. I had this trajectory for financial and social success, but inwardly I was empty. I was broken. I didn't like who I was. I was proud and arrogant. And so, you know, there came a point in my life, you know, a lot of people meet God when they're down and when they're broken, it wasn't like that for me. I was broken inwardly, but not outwardly. And so I began to seek the God that I embraced when I was nine years old. And after a series of events over a seven-month period, you know, the message was clear. I know that you believe in God, but now you need to surrender to God. We all have patterns. We we oftentimes we look at what we do, but we don't look at why we do them. And I can recall a time in my life, and I actually talk about it in the book, where, you know, I finally reached a certain financial level where I could afford a very expensive watch. And so my gift to myself was this really expensive watch. And I would find myself uh, not leaving out the house unless I had on this watch. If I were, if I was going to the cleaners or somewhere and I, you know, had on sweats or whatever, I would put on this watch. And one day I just really had to be introspective and say, Torre, why do you, why are you wearing this watch? I mean, it's a nice watch, great for nice occasions, but you're going to the cleaners and you got on sweats. And as I begin to really drill down and ask the question why, I realized that I had a fear of people thinking that I was poor. And and I didn't want to be rejected or, you know, I live in an affluent area and I didn't want to feel, I wanted to feel like I, I fit in. And so here in was something that seemed really simple and normal. Hey, what's wrong with putting on a nice watch? Well, there's nothing wrong with putting on a nice watch unless you are finding your sense of adequacy in it. Am I less worthy or less lovable or less of a person a beautiful person if i don't spend this money on myself and so brokenness thrives in all of our blind spots you know even when it comes to right now in our culture you know there there's a lot of division in our culture and some of it rides on racial lines and different things and you know i think on every side of that argument you know the reality is sometimes maybe we are what people accuse us of we are the hardest people to see we can see everyone else and make comments and judgments about everyone else, but the only person that we cannot fully see is us. Look within and maybe, just maybe, you'll discover something that you could not see on your own that was actually a sabotaging element to the future that that, that God wants you to live.
0: Entrepreneur and writer, Cheryl Carpen. My name is Cheryl Carpin, and I'm a wife, bonus mom.
6: I'm a very proud grandmother. I'm an entrepreneur and an author. I grew up in a rural township called Johnsville, Minnesota, and I had a wonderful childhood. My father was a farmer and a fireman, and whether on the job or off the job, he always seemed to be putting out someone's fire, like pulling over to help a stranded motorist or visiting the elderly or helping a neighbor rebuild their car transmission. My dad was always rescuing people, and as kids, we knew that he had our back, too. My mom, she was a stay-at-home mom, but she was a great seeker of faith and wisdom, whether it was through books or church. And if one of our neighborhood kids had a crisis, they would most likely end up at the carpet table, at our table. And so, in a way, I grew up in this family where my parents were always serving in one way or another. And as a child, my parents gave me a lot of free reign, so to dream and imagine and explore, I was the youngest. And so, but also I got, I used to get in a lot of trouble and so it's kind of a miracle that I survived those early years. But by the grace of God, I'm here. My two favorite activities when I was younger was playing store and directing and hosting childhood like talent shows, and which was probably an early indication of where I was headed professionally in life. It was probably where I Got my first love of like being up on stage and having a microphone in my hand, even though it was a plastic microphone. I was a dreamer and I loved imagining and scheming of living like a large life. And because of that, when I was 16 years old, I told my dad one day my big hairy dream, which was I was gonna move to New York City and become a fashion coordinator. I landed a job in New York City. And what I loved about that is that working in the fashion world taught me many lessons about the world of commerce and how products were actually brought to market, and which led me down another path. I said I would never return home to a small town. You know, I'd never move back to Johnsville and the Noka, Minnesota area, because, you know, I was a big city girl. But it was probably, you know, 10, 15 years later, I ended up moving back home and my mother gave me $1,000 and I had a $1,500 credit limit on my Visa card. And I opened up a very small gift and home decor store called Something Different in downtown, which was just eight miles from where I grew up. This was one of the best times of my life because I love the creativity and freedom of being an entrepreneur. And I thrived. I mean, I literally thrived on connecting with people and hearing their stories. Yet, one year later, I personally hit rock bottom. I thought I was gonna die of a broken heart. And I really thought I was literally going to die. And at the age of 32, I couldn't understand why no one would love me. And when I look back at that time when I was, I mean, I was literally flatlined and devastated. I just felt so unloved. And I remember two things. One is my customers in my retail store noticed that I didn't have that kind of unbridled enthusiasm that I was so well known for. One morning, I was sitting in the chair in my mother's living room, and I I was sobbing, and and I just couldn't understand why life was, had just gone so wrong, you know? My dreams were broken, and, and I remember my mom coming over to me and hugging me, and she held me in her arms, and she said, don't worry, Cheryl, God just has a different plan for you. And it was hard for me to believe then, but, wow, did ye ever have a different plan for me. And I am so grateful. I call that time in my life, my beautiful broken heart. I rededicated my little store called Something Different to Celebrating and Inspiring Women. And I filled the store shelves with messages like, you're beautiful just the way you are, and believe in the power of your dreams, and have faith, and you are loved. I believe every person that crosses our path is there to teach us, or we are there to teach them. And sometimes those experiences are wonderful and filled with joy, and sometimes those experiences are, are filled with heartache and sorrow. When I hit rock bottom, I knew that I could no longer rely on a human's love for me. I could only rely on God's love for me. And if He loved me that much, why couldn't I love myself? I wake up each morning grateful for my breath, for my life, for my ability to move my limbs, for my chance to serve and to love another day. I'm also a little bit obsessive about taking walks in nature because that's when God often speaks to me. And it's not like I hear a voice, but I receive a feeling, a nudge, an inspiration. And when this happens, I just always wonder, like, how can anyone doubt <laughs> the Lord, which is why Jesus' calling is such a blessing. Here are these words on these pages that just speak into the life of us as a human being. And I remember the first time someone gave me a book, I sat down and I think I read about half of it in one setting because I couldn't wait for the next day because I was so thirsty for that wisdom that seemed to flow off of those pages. I love July 14th. It says, keep walking with me along the path I have chosen for you. Your desire to live close to me is a delight to my heart. I could instantly grant you the spiritual riches you desire, but that is not my way for you. Together, we will forge a pathway up the high mountain. The journey is arduous at times, and you are weak. Someday, you will dance light-footed on the high peaks, but for now, your walk is often plodding and heavy. All I require of you is to take the next step, clinging to my hand for strength and direction. Though the path is difficult and the scenery dull at the moment, there are sparkling surprises just around the bend. Stay on that path I have selected for you. It is truly the path of life. We all need one another to navigate this life. And we all have that opportunity to reach out and dare, dare to to be a resting place for someone. I wasn't always kind to my mother when I was growing up. I mean, when I was teen, I was I was disrespectful and, and I was sometimes really, really mean. And I'll tell you, when I speak in high schools, I always tell the kids, go home and be nice to your mom because otherwise you'll have to spend the next 40 years of your life making up for it like I did. <laughs> and you know, I know I've said, I'm sorry, mom, for the heartache that I put you through. She deserves every bit of love and respect an admiration I can give her, an amazing woman.
0: Actress and author, Candace Cameron Bure.
7: I'm Candace Cameron Bure. You probably know me best as DJ Tanner on Full House and Fuller House, or maybe my Hallmark movies. I do a lot of Christmas ones. Uh, I'm also an author. Well, I grew up with a mom and dad, a brother and two sisters. We didn't really grow up in a faith-filled home or a Christian home, but we started going to church when I was 12 years old. And that's because my parents were thinking of divorcing. And so some friends had invited our family to church. And that was the first time, which uh, has been a huge part of my life now, But I would say that I became a Christian at 12 years old, but didn't really live my life for Christ. It was just like another title in my life. But in my early 20s, my faith really became my own, and I wanted to really know Jesus and have a relationship with God. And that's when it changed for me my mom and dad always taught me to be kind growing up and that is a message that i have carried on to this day and i think it is so important and even more now than ever with our country and the world being so divisive in so many issues i think that we all have kindness in us but we need to be reminded of it we need to put the spotlight back on kindness so it's not that it's in short supply but we all have the ability to make a difference. And if each one of us made one small change every single day, it can, it can have a ripple effect. And so kindness doesn't have to be something major and huge every single time. It can be as simple as smiling to someone. It can be as simple as asking them if they need anything. I know how encouraged I am when someone asks me those things or just if i'm getting my coffee in the morning and they say hey have a great day be blessed that's something special it brightens my day and when we can pass along those things it will generate more and more kindness so it starts with each one of us i remember trying to show kindness to a woman that not only, I hope, made her feel good, but made me feel good. And it was really simple, but I was in New York working. I was on the subway uh, going to my job, and it was packed. It was crowded. It was hot. We were all sweaty in there, we're crammed. I'm holding a, the, uh, the pole in the subway, and I saw this woman, pregnant very pregnant and every seat was taken and as the train would stop for the next exit people would get up and leave and everyone would jam for the open seat. And this poor woman, I just saw her, she couldn't even take a step fast enough to sit down. And I'm thinking to myself in the subway, why aren't you people giving up your seat for this pregnant woman? Where's the courtesy? What happened to it? And it just kind of broke my heart. And I didn't know what I could do because I was standing myself. And I just kept looking at the woman because I wanted to just offer her some empathy and some sympathy and say, I know how you're feeling right now and I'm so sorry. And so I I just, I finally caught her eye and I just gave her a really gentle smile. Like, I'm so sorry. Like, (laughs) you should not be riding 50 blocks standing up. Someone should give you their seat. But she smiled back and I could just see the relief in her eye of like, thank you. Thank you for feeling my pain at the moment. And you know, I hope she left better for it knowing that I just, could sympathize with her. And I certainly left better knowing that um, if anything, I could just kind of offer my, my love to her through a smile. So I'd like to read one of the devotionals from Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. And I'm reading June 13th, and that's my husband's birthday. I am creating something new in you a bubbling spring of joy that spills over into others' lives. Do not mistake this joy for your own or try to take credit for it in any way. Instead, watch in delight as my spirit flows through you to bless others. Let yourself become a reservoir of the spirit's fruit. Your part is to live close to me, open to all that I am doing in you. Don't try to control the streaming of my spirit through you. Just keep focusing on me as we walk through this day together. Enjoy my presence, which permeates you with love, joy, and peace. Well, I know that my joy comes from the Lord and in everything I do, especially with work, uh, because although I work hard, I just feel like things have been given to me that I should not have earned, or I should not have gotten there to that place. And it's just a blessing that the Lord has given me. And it brings me such joy to give Him the glory for it and to honor Him and and thank Him for it. And for people to be able to see that in my life, I just think to myself, like, what did I do, Lord, to deserve this and thank you? And I hope that I am blessing others by it, by sharing the word and writing my books and, and spreading the message of kindness. I hope that is a blessing that people will
0: continue to pass on. Former NFL quarterback, Jeff Hostetler.
8: Hi, I'm Jeff Hostetler and played in the NFL for 15 years strong Christian man that uh, loves the Lord and grew up in a a great Christian family and a father of three grown sons, got four grandkids and just um, uh, one heck of a beautiful wife. I grew up in a small uh, farming town. I call it a farming town. It was uh, a rural area and uh, one of seven kids in a Mennonite family. So we had dairy cows and 18,000 chickens. So we had lots of uh, chores to do outside an awful lot, but grew up in a real strong Christian family. Mom and dad that uh, led by example. My mom was the glue. She was a strong woman of faith and believed in the power of prayer. Every day, you know, we knew where she stood. She loved the Lord, and she passed that on to us, all seven kids. I started playing football when I was, you know, I don't even know when I started, to be honest with you. In the backyard, I had two older brothers that had started to play, and it was always my two older brothers against my younger brother and I. So we used to get the, the tar kicked out of us. And uh, But we did a lot of playing in the backyard in between doing chores and taking care of things on the farm. As a senior in high school, I was a quarterback and a linebacker. And after the first game, we lost our tailback. And so my coach came back and asked me if I would move from quarterback to tailback and let my younger brother be the quarterback. And I thought, yeah, I'll do that. So I actually never played quarterback my senior year. I was a Parade All-American as a linebacker coming out of high school. And somehow God used that to take me into a professional career and to the top of that professional career through uh, the Super Bowl. I started out at Penn State. I followed my two older brothers and started out as a freshman and played in five or six games as a quarterback as a freshman which was pretty amazing at that time and started my sophomore year started the first three games of the season as the starter and then was told after that game we had lost a game joe was going to make a move and he was going to start another guy and i had a very difficult time with that because i didn't feel like i had deserved that i felt like i had deserved to to continue to be the starter and and to play was a real frustrating time in my life trying to figure out why god i've worked so hard to get to this position and i've earned it and yet it's being taken away from me what's the purpose of this you know and really struggled with you know where i was at why i was there in my faith and again go back to my mom and dad my mom would constantly tell me jeff god's got a plan for you and um just have to keep plugging away and seeing the example that my dad would set being on a farm, there are things that always went wrong. And yet, constantly, every day, get up and continue to plug away, continue to plug away. There was no quit. My NFL career didn't start out as I would have liked. There was a lot of frustration. I didn't see the playing field my first year at all. And the second year I came in, was just looking for a way to get on the field, to try to do anything that I could. I ended up being behind a starter that was his first year full-time starting, my first year coming into the league, and he played well, he played really well. And so there was this sense of not knowing if I was ever gonna get an opportunity, when it would come, The pressure of it to see how you play the game, the speed of the game, all these things were big jumps from college into the NFL. And so, you know, there were doubts that creep into your mind when you don't get an opportunity to step out onto the field. And you wonder, you know, can I do this? And if you don't have an opportunity to do it, you can't prove it to yourself or to others. So, lots of times in the NFL, your worth is based on your performance. And so, when you don't have an opportunity to perform, it's a struggle trying to maintain what you feel like your worth is, and it's one of the things that I think faith-wise helped me get through that time because I realized that my worth wasn't based on my performance out on the field. You know, my mom was a prayer warrior, and so um, I know that she was constantly there and look back at times and know that the only way that I made it through some of those times was the prayers of uh, my family and, and members of the faith. The uh, seventh year of my career, you know, we came into the season and I was the backup at the time and played real well during the preseason, so I I felt really good about that and felt like I deserved an opportunity to play, and I even had the head coach at that time tell me that I deserved to see the, the field, to play, but I was also behind a guy that was playing really, really well. And so I didn't know if I was gonna have any opportunities or not, but I felt better as to where I was professionally. And then all of a sudden, I think it was somewhere around the third or fourth game of the season. Phil Sims was the starter. He went down, I came in, and we ended up winning a game. We were down 19 to 10 with five minutes left in the game and uh, was able to bring us back and win the game with the last second field goal. And so it was an awesome opportunity for me to go out and show and do something that I've always wanted to do, but never had the opportunity. About a couple, two, three weeks later, out of the blue, we're in the middle of a game. Sims is fine, he's playing, and Parcells yelled out, Hostetler, you're in. He was testing me, and this was during a game where the outcome was not decided, and uh, gave me the opportunity came in uh, phil wasn't hurt went in uh, we drove the field Uh, i scored on a uh, scramble and it gave me a lot of confidence because i knew the guys around me all believed that i could play and my head coach believed that i could play and he was testing me and he put me in and i passed god taught me so many things during that period of time things that i could never ever have been able to understand or fathom or believe and talk about patience and perseverance and and dedication and belief in your self-worth. My mom used to tell me this when I was in high school. Whenever I'd leave at night to go out, Uh, with my buddies, she would tell me, remember who you are and whose you are. And it used to really bother me because she was always putting that in my head before I left. And how could I go out and do something that I knew that they wouldn't approve of when she's telling me, remember who you are and whose you are. And I remembered who I was and I know I was was God's. And I, I know where I came from and I know whose I am. and so. Through the uh, season, we ended up winning our last two games of the season, and then uh, we played the Chicago Bears in our first playoff game, and I played really, really well. And next week we're playing the San Francisco 49ers, who are going for a three-peat. They'd won the last two Super Bowls and heavily favored against Joe Montana. And there was all this negative stuff about the comparison between him and me, and that we weren't gonna have a chance. We had played them earlier in the season and lost, and so there was no chance, no chance at all. And yet, I felt like God had me there for a reason. And our team felt like, hey, we're going out. We're a different team. That's why you play the game. And so we went out, we're playing. We're in the third quarter, I believe, fourth quarter, something like that. And I dropped back to, to pass, and a guy comes in, hits me right on the knee, straight on. And I go down. I heard a pop and felt burning, and I knew from my playing days knew what an injury was like knew what a tear of a ligament was like and i knew i was done and I, I remember just laying there i was still laying on the ground and just broken because i thought god after waiting all this time and having this opportunity and being so close to go out like this i uh, i just i couldn't speak i was devastated and i remember laying there and laying there and laying there and thinking Uh, What am I going to do? And and just being heartbroken. And then all of a sudden, uh, the doctors are there and they're asking me questions and I'm not responding. And then I just felt this this tingling come down through me and just this peace and was able to get up and, and start to walk off and didn't feel right. But yet I felt like, you know, I might be able to do this. I knew something wasn't right, but I felt, you know, maybe I can continue and was able to get onto the sideline and felt like, okay, I think it's stable enough, I'm gonna go, was able to go back out, lead us back to a a drive at the end of the game to kick the game-winning field goal to go to the Super Bowl. The next week, we win the Super Bowl. My mom and dad are in the stands. They watch uh, their son uh, win a game, win a Super Bowl that they um, had always dreamed of. Um, Six weeks later, my mom died. It was after her funeral, I was home. And uh, we were going through some of her things. And I came across this little booklet. And it was her prayer journal. And uh, it was actually her football prayer journal because it was all the stats of the games that she would watch. And here, she couldn't make it out to the San Francisco game. And so she's sitting there, and she's watching the game. And she's got all the stats on there. And she has things that people were saying. And, that, and then all of a sudden, there's this area at the bottom where she says, Lord, Heal my son, heal my son, heal my son. You go back and you time it out. And she's watching the game and she says, I go down and then it's heal my son, heal my son, heal my son. And I had that feeling come over me. Uh, That's a woman of prayer uh, that believed the power of prayer. She's with the Lord now. But I know at that time, God honored her prayer and she was an integral part of who I am.
0: Thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of the Jesus Calling podcast. Be sure and subscribe to the Jesus Calling podcast so you can hear the full stories from each of these guests, and also make sure you get these special bonus episodes each month. For more information on Jesus Calling and Sarah Young, please visit JesusCalling.com or visit us on our social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.